Welcome to the Giants Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent impressions vlog. In that vlog, I discussed my initial plays of Beyond the Sun, Lost Runes of Arnak, the Castles of Tuscany, Vikings, and Whistle Mountain. Now, that is the order in which I'll be talking about these games, and if you'd like to hear about specific games, then go to the description of this podcast where you can find timestamps for each individual one. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support coming in through the Patreon campaign for the YouTube channel. Now, you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games, and I do hope that if you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form, that you would consider financially supporting the channel. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for this vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Alright, let's now start discussing these games, and the first of them is Beyond the Sun. Now, before I say anything else, I want to be totally upfront about the fact that I was paid to make a sponsored tutorial video for this game from the publisher. Um, now, no part of that payment had anything to do with my subjective opinion that was just making a tutorial video, and now, in this vlog, I'm going to give you my opinion, which they did not pay for, but of course, you might think that I'm biased because of my professional relationship with the publisher. Um, now, I have been able to play this game four times over the last two weeks, and all of these plays happened with a private uh, tabletop simulator mod, so it is not currently publicly available, but I have been able to play this with my friends. Now, um, just the fact that I've played this game four times over the last two weeks should probably give you a little bit of a spoiler as to my feelings, and I'm just going to start this off by saying that I have been super impressed with this game, and the reason I keep playing it is because I am curious to keep playing it. Um, now, I'm going to try to give you my opinion while I actually discuss how the game mechanically works, and let's start with a very brief overview of the game. Now, what you do in this game is you have a single worker pawn, and on your turn, you move it to an open worker placement spot in a communal board. So it's kind of a worker movement game. You just move this around to a new spot, and you do whatever that spot says. And the main thing that you're doing in this game, or one of the main things, is you're developing a technology tree. At the start of the game, everybody just has basic space flight, and as you take actions that let you develop new technology, you're going to essentially follow these lines out on the board to then place new text down, which will um, increase the variety of different actions available to the people who have developed that technology, and you can then go from level 2 technologies to 3 and 3 to 4, and it has this great um, prerequisite uh, uh, mechanic where if you are doing, uh, if the prerequisite for a new technology is military, then the new technology has to be a military type. So you're not going to go from a military into like scientific or something like that uh, unless you have a couple prerequisite options, and again I'm not going to go into the specifics, but um, the uh, short version of this is everybody is communally constructing a different tech tree every time you play the game. Uh, when you develop these technologies, you do have a decision to make between two different techs, so it's not totally random, and you are kind of sculpting this communal board. Now, once one person develops a new technology, then other people can follow up as long as they have the right prerequisites, and um, one of the main things you're doing in this game besides those technologies is you are creating spaceships and moving them around on an exploration board to take control of different systems and then try to colonize those systems, which means you claim them and you put them in front of yourself to get some points and um, some special effects. Uh, now, that's kind of the main uh, arc of what you're doing in this game, and the reason that I uh, was initially quite interested in playing a full game of this is because 
as you play through the game, the overall technology experience is going to grow. You know, the first half of the game involves just seeing some level two and maybe a level three technology or two. But then once you get to the late stages of the game, you will see many of these level three technologies and potentially level four technologies, which are incredibly powerful and can give a lot of end game victory points. And seeing this mix of technologies in each game has been fascinating. Uh, once I finished my very first game of this, I was pretty high on it. I really enjoyed it, even though I did not come close to winning. I think I came dead last. Um, but I was, I remember feeling really curious to see what a next game would be like. And I asked my uh, friends who played it with me, it was a three-player game, uh, what they thought. Uh, one of them really enjoyed it. And the other one enjoyed it, but they were kind of concerned that maybe future plays would feel a bit samey. Now, unfortunately, I've not been able to play with that friend again, but I can say now that I have personally played four different games, I can say that um, even though I've seen many of the same technologies uh, show up in multiple games, the way they come out and the order in which they come out and the things that are before and after them on that technology tree really change the overall flow of the game. In addition to that, there are achievements, which are essentially communal goals that people are trying to uh, get to. And in fact, claiming these achievements is the way the game ends, and you uh, deal out a couple random ones of those each game, and those also drastically affect the game. Uh, so in the first game that we played, there was uh, very little colonizing, and we went crazy on the technology track, and you get points for doing just about everything in this game, including get te getting technologies and um, uh, claiming the systems and colonizing them. Uh, so in that first game, we were like, wow, colonizing didn't really happen that much, but in, the, in my second game, there was a crazy amount of colonizing because three out of the four achievements had something to do with colonizing. So obviously players were developing technologies that um, helped us out with colonizing because that was an achievement we were going for. And then in the third game that we played, I personally tried to go crazy on technology. Uh, I barely interacted with the exploration board. I just um, swarmed the technology board with as many of uh, these uh, technology advancements that I could get. Now, my main goal in that game was to try and get multiple of the level four technologies, but this is a somewhat tactical game, and what ended up happening in that game, in that third play, is that uh, the game ended with no ways to actually develop a level four technology. Now, if I backtrack a little bit, there are four levels of technology, and at the start of the game, um, there are action spots to develop the level one and level two. So at the beginning of the game, there's no way to make three or four technologies, but there are various events that will happen that I won't go into the specifics of that can unlock the ability to generate the uh, level three techs, and also level two technologies can uh, give you the ability to develop level threes. Now, in this one play, um, even though I developed, I think, three of the level three technologies, I never found one that let me develop a level four tech. And even though in every game there is a possibility of a level uh, four technology action becoming freed up on the main board, which is details I'm not going to go into, the way this game played out, my opponents kind of had control as to whether that would happen, and they could see that I was in a position to take multiple level four technologies, so they didn't let that happen. Um, now, there's ways that I could have tried to run up a different part of the research track to make that happen, but, you know, in that play, I ended up having to switch gears a little bit and use my massive amount of technologies to try and then go back to the exploration board and get a bunch of points that way. And I uh, came in a somewhat narrow second place. I feel like if I could have developed a level four technology, I might have been able to win that one. But it's really hard to say because I was able to switch gears with my massive amount of powerful technology to do uh, really strong stuff as well. Now, as I said a little bit ago, I'm going to talk a little bit about the tactics versus strategy in this game. Uh, now, this 
is a somewhat tactical game. This is not the kind of experience where you can go into the game and say, I'm going to uh, specifically go really hard on X. Like in that game where I decided I was going to go crazy on technologies, I didn't start that game saying that. I decided that because the first level two technology I got let me develop level three technologies. So I was like, okay, I think, you know, I already have the ability to develop level three technologies. So let's um, press that button. You know, I have that button available to me. I've already invested in it. And so that kind of guided me into going into a very technology heavy game. Uh, in other games, when several colonizing uh, options popped out and uh, maybe lots of ways to build ships and move those ships around the exploration board, in those games, there was a lot more action on the exploration board because the game itself kind of dictated what good strategies were going to be available in that specific play. Now, for some people who like to go into a Euro-style game saying, uh, this game, I'm going to just do X from the very first turn, uh, you're likely going to be disappointed. Um, now, I've played this game with a variety of people, a couple of which who uh, have played it three, uh, uh, twice with me. And one of those people um, was pretty lukewarm on the game after the first play. Uh, she, uh, after that first play, I remember she said that she didn't really enjoy the play, but she thought she liked the game. And the reason for that is because she was really thinking about specifically going for a, a, a one type of strategy in the beginning of the game, and the options that became available didn't really lend towards that. And by the time they kind of figured out that was a problem, they couldn't switch gears enough and they came very far last. Uh, now, on the subsequent play with that player, we actually played with one of the advanced variants. There are two advanced variants in the game, and one of them is introducing some pretty significant asymmetry between all of the player boards that you can go with. Now, these player boards do kind of give you a strategy that you're going to be going toward because they have an asymmetry that you can really lean into. Now, I played the game again with um, that one player and another friend who had played it already, and we played with the asymmetric boards. And uh, that one player, she destroyed us. Like, it, it was... It, actually, not destroyed us. She, she came in uh, uh, first place by a, a reasonable margin. And um, she really enjoyed that play much more because of using those advanced boards meant there was more of a strategy you could lean on from the very beginning versus having a uh, strategy kind of emerge from the game state. Now, my personal opinion after playing the game just once with those advanced boards is I don't actually think I'm that big a fan of them because of that reason. I feel like the reason I really like Beyond the Sun is because it has an emergent strategic experience every time you play. So I would rather play with the uh, essentially symmetric boards, um, the non-advanced variant, because I want to see the options that the game is kind of guiding me towards and then make decisions from that. The game isn't playing itself by any means, but I would rather not find myself in a situation like I did in that game where it seemed like my uh, asymmetric ability on my board was saying do A, and the situation I had out on the board was saying do B. Uh, this was actually the game where I went heavy on the technologies, and the situation on the board said go heavy on tech, but my asymmetric ability was like you get discounts for colonizing and you know making ships and taking over control spots on the uh, board. So I kind of felt split, and so I ended up not leaning into my asymmetry, and I leaned into my board state advantage, and um, uh, my, my friend who won... Uh, uh, they leaned into their uh, asymmetric ability on their board, which also happened to go along with some other situation decisions they made, and they were able to win. Um, so there are ways to play this game more strategically, and I think that is specifically with those advanced boards, and I like that there's an option to go back and forth between those. 
Now there is another variant, which is the technology market. Now when you play the game in the standard way, uh, every time you advance uh, for a new technology, you are going to draw two applicable texts from the deck and choose between those two and then that will be the technology. So you always have a decision between two cards. When you play with the advanced uh, module where you have a technology market, instead you have a set of face-up uh, technology options on the table and those are going to show between one and potentially four different technologies that match the prerequisite for any tech that you advance. Now I've played the game with this once and I loved this variant. Uh, honestly, I don't think I'm ever going to play the game again without this variant because it did not really add much complexity at all. Um, to a certain extent, you could say, oh, you know, there's all these technology cards, you know, staring at me that's just a lot more things to analyze. But I found it wasn't that big of a problem. And in that game, one of the people who played in that three-player game had not played Beyond the Sun before, and they uh, they destroyed us. I remember being destroyed once, and it was just, it was a stomping. <laughs> it was their first play, and it was a second play for both of the other players. And uh, man, it was not even close. But I just loved having all of those options face up from the uh, beginning of the game so you have even more control when you go to develop a technology you can say i am developing this technology it's not even random uh, choice between two um, you can still go random from the top if you want to but that never happened in our game because we just kept picking things from the market so i love that variant and i think if literally no one has played the game before it's probably not a good idea to use that variant but if even one or two players have used that and anyone is interested i say that one's not particularly advanced. It's just an alternate way to play that gives you a little bit more control. And this, uh, at the end of the day, is a Euro game. You know, it's a worker movement game. You are uh, gathering resources. And oh my gosh, there's so many things I haven't even talked about just yet, um, which I'll try not to uh, go into the specifics of. But this is a Euro game that has some input randomness, quite a bit of it. You have events that happen that uh, will change the game state, but usually doesn't uh, throw the game in one player's direction or another. You have technologies which you have control over, but you know, if you're not using that technology market, um, you're not sure exactly what you're going to get, but you have a decision to make still. And there are uh, other ways that randomness can kind of peek in, but it's a Euro game. There's a lot of decisions and there are a lot of deterministic things that you do have control over. Now, there are, like I said, many other things I could say, but there's one more um, mechanic that I would like to focus on, and that is these resource cubes. Now, at the start of the game, you take what looks like a bunch of D6 dice and you put them onto your player board, but you essentially never roll them. I say essentially because one event makes you roll them, but um, for all intents and purposes, they are a token. Uh, and so they, it has six sides, and as a part of the game, you are essentially taking these things as resources, which is a die face, and you are, I guess, supplies, and you turn those into population through various actions, and then you can turn population uh, by also using some space ore to make ships of various strengths, and the strength number on the ships will dictate um, how strong you are for controlling these different systems. So it's a really uh, brilliant type of thing because then once the ships are over there on the systems and you colonize the system, those ships turn back into supply and go back down onto your board. So you have this wonderful kind of loop of these resources, and basically off of how you can grow out your infrastructure, um, you can really find yourself in a tight situation if you are uh, not really closing that loop, so to speak, or at least finding ways to better capitalize on the resources you have. Or you could be really slick and uh, make that loop nice and fast. And from one game to the next, um, you'll be able to do that really well sometimes and not others based off of the situation that you have. Um, so... Again, I need to probably try to wrap this up. I've talked about it a lot, but at this point, after playing four times with both of the advanced variants, I can uh, I can honestly say this is one of my favorite games that I've played this year. Um, I've played it, like I said, four times. One of those was a second play for all of us, and it was impromptu. We actually were playing a bunch of other games uh, in a night, and it was like 
9.30, 10 o'clock at night, and three of us were left over, and we're like, do we just want to, like, slam out a game of Beyond the Sun? We all know it. Let's just jump right into it. And we did. Uh, and that game took about 90 minutes, and I will say that that particular play, that was the one where I went heavy on tech, um, for various reasons, it took a while for the achievements to happen, and if things had gone a different way, I could easily see a three-player game of this taking, you know, a little bit over an hour. Um, so the, the various situations that happened in the game are just going to affect the overall timing, but uh, I really like this game. Uh, I've only played it at three players so far. All four games have been three players. I imagine the two-player game would be great, and I would not mind playing a four-player game of this probably as long as uh, most of the people were familiar with it. I think analysis paralysis could certainly start to set in. Uh, fortunately, in this game, it's very streamlined when it comes to resources. You have ore, you have uh, population, and that's essentially it. So you are just spending these two things. It's not like you're balancing a whole bunch of different resources for uh, resource management. But there's still quite a bit of things to talk uh, to think about. But downtime hasn't been too bad. And yeah, that is Beyond the Sun. I am looking forward to, honestly, many more plays of this as I continue to explore the different systems because it's just been a really fun, emergent, uh, uh, strategic experience every time I played. Sure, there's tactics there, but I really like the emergent strategies that the game presents itself, especially when, me personally, when I don't use those asymmetric boards. So that is Beyond the Sun. Okay, let's now move on to the second game I'll be discussing, and that is Lost Ruins of Arnak. Now, I was sent a physical press copy of this one from Czech Games Edition, which I definitely appreciate. And uh, at the moment, the main way that I'm playing board games is actually online with friends. Uh, currently, there is no publicly available mod for this, so I spent six hours uh, scanning and building my own private tabletop uh, simulator mod so that I can play this with friends. Now, I was able to play this last night, and I will uh, spoil the impressions right now by saying that uh, everyone who plays Played it, quite liked it, but let's now talk about the specifics of the mechanics a bit. Now, this is a hybrid of many different types of games. You have some worker placement, you have uh, a decent amount of deck building, and you also have quite a bit of resource acquisition and management while you're playing this game. Now, thematically, uh, you have found a uh, island in the middle of the ocean that has a bunch of uh, lost temples and relics and uh, various things on it, and you are going to start exploring that island but in a competitive environment. Now, every player has two archaeologist workers, and you will have them throughout the whole game, and each game of uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak is going to take place over five rounds. Now, when you send out your archaeologists, they are going to go to an empty spot, which means this is very worker placement-y when it comes to mechanics, but whenever you send a archaeologist out, you have to pay the travel cost for them to go out to a spot. That spot might be a boot, which means they walk there. It might be a car or a boat, which means they drove or, you know, I guess, drove a boat <laughs> to that spot. And also, they might show a plane, which means you had to fly to that spot. Now, the way you pay for this, in general, is you're going to pay a card from your hand. Now, I said this is a deck-building game, and at the start of the game, each player has uh, the, the same identical deck of six cards. You draw five of those into your hand at the start of each round, and every card in the top left corner shows a travel icon, which, again, could be a plane, a boat, a car, or boots. So that means if you want to use one of your two workers, you send them out to a spot that's empty, you also have to potentially pay a card from your hand. So that means right away you have this inter interesting uh, interplay between the worker placement elements of the game and the deck building elements because you have to decide, is the effect on this card better or worse than the worker placement spot? That's because when you spend a card for the travel, you don't get to do what's listed on the card as an action. So um, in the one game of this that I've played, uh, I can say that in one of the five rounds, I actually didn't use either of my workers because the actions on my cards were stronger, in my opinion, than the potential things I was able to do with my workers. Um, now, 
I did come in last, <laughs> so maybe that was a bad idea, but those were the decisions that I made uh, in the moment. Uh, now, fortunately, there are also, well, I guess fortunately and not so good, at the start of the game, you begin with these fear cards in your deck, a couple of them. They're worth negative points at the end of the game, and they don't have an action, but they do show a boot. So that means right at the beginning, it does make sense to spend these fear cards to use the boot action to walk over to a spot and uh, perform an action. So uh, that interplay sometimes is obvious, spend a fear card to move, but as you get deeper into the game, you will likely get rid of those fear cards or potentially not draw them, and then you have some real decisions to make. Now, I did mention that this is a uh, deck building game, and at the start of the, or at the top of the board, there is a market of different cards. Now, there are two different types of cards in the game. You have artifacts and you have items, and this game has a wonderful mechanic with splitting them up. You have a deck of each of those, and you also have this moon staff, which hangs out kind of on the left side of the row on the one spot. Now, that is to show that this is the first round of the game, and you fill the uh, artifacts in from one side and the items in from the other. I'm probably getting this swapped on camera. But what that means is, in the first round of the game, there's only a single artifact showing, but then there are, I believe, five of the items showing. Now, thematically, the idea there is that you just arrived and you have a bunch of items, which are kind of like stuff that you brought with you, and you've only just started exploring the island, so there's not that many artifacts to choose from. Now, when you go from the first round to the second round, you move that staff over. So now there is one less space for the items, but there's one more space for the artifacts. So as the game goes on and you proceed from round to round, you are going to have the item market get smaller and the artifact market get bigger because, again, thematically, you are using up your supplies and you have explored a lot more of the island, so you have a lot more access to the different artifacts. Now, there is a very important distinction between these two types beyond just uh, buying them. Uh, the artifacts cost compasses and the items cost coins, but when you buy an item, you put it to the bottom of your deck. So that means unless you have a lot of card draw options, it'll probably you probably draw it in the next round of the game. However, when you buy the artifacts, you immediately play them. They go right into your play area. You activate the uh, ability that's listed on them. So that means, unlike most deck building games where you buy cards strictly for the future, in this game, one of the two different types of cards that you buy, you immediately get to use. So what that means is, even though this game is only five rounds long, there are many situations, or at least that we saw in our first game, where especially once we got into like the third, fourth, and fifth rounds, we had enough resources to buy artifact cards to then put them in front of us, immediately activate them, which gave us the stuff that we needed to do something else, to then give us more resources, to give us compasses that we can then use to buy another artifact, to then use the and you can have these crazy turns where, again, you start every round with just five cards in front of you, but you might end up playing like 10, 12 cards <laughs> because of various card draw effects that you have. And by buying these awesome artifacts that you find, you get to use them immediately and then they go into your deck. So you will hypothetically bump into them uh, later on. So that's a really cool interplay with the deck building. Uh, now, Again, I'm harping on the uh, mechanics quite a bit right here, but I'm trying to intersperse my opinion as well. But the next big thing to talk about is the fact that um, there are a lot of kind of closed doors in this game, a lot of surprise actions. And that's because, uh, as I mentioned, you can send your archaeologist workers out, but at the start of the game, uh, most of the worker placement spots are uh, vacant. You actually have to explore those locations by spending compasses. Now, when you do that, you actually spend the compasses and you send your worker out to a spot, and then you draw a random location from a deck, and you put it over there, and that is the thing that you are going to perform. So when you go exploring, you don't know what you are going to get. Odds are good, it's going to be a variety of different resources, but it could really be a, a very wide variety. And on top of that, so you go there and you spend the things and you explore it, and you get the random stuff. Um, there's also a guardian that shows up. Now, this is a big monster type thing that is guarding that location. And at the end of the round, if you have not moved your archaeologist away from that location, then that monster is going to 
terrify your archaeologist, and you will gain a fear card, which goes into your deck, which again does not have an action on it, and it loses you a point at the end of the game. Now, fortunately, you can spend the uh, various things that are listed on the Guardian in order to defeat the Guardian, or I guess overcome them. You don't technically fight them, or at least you don't technically kill them. You uh, get their respect, and they end up coming over to you. They give you a one-shot bonus, and they give you five points at the end of the game, and then Obviously, that spot is cleared from the Guardian, but it's really important to note that you can always go to spots and activate their uh, effects, even if Guardians are there. They're kind of just passively around, looming, making you scared. So you'll get the effects, but if you don't deal with the Guardian, you get the negative one point, which, you know, you certainly don't want. So what that means is many of the actions in this game actually involve doing something that you don't know what's going to happen. You open the door and you're like, oh, cool, I guess these are the resources that I get and I need to do this and that and the other thing to fight off that uh, Guardian. So this game really mixes a lot of pre-planning with also just kind of going with the flow uh, tactics. I say a lot of pre-planning because especially once you get into the mid to late game, you're going to start the round with five cards in your hand and you start to plan things out. You say, okay, do I want to, uh, do I want to use a worker placement spot? Yes. Okay. Well, how am I going to do that? Am I going to spend a card? It's worth noting. There are also assistance assistance that you can get, which will give you resources and potentially uh, movement. And you can only spend two coins to essentially charter a plane that lets you move anywhere. So you don't have to spend a card, but it's just one of the many decisions that you have to make. But that being said, I found myself oftentimes kind of making a plan saying, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. But before I do, you know, thing two and thing three, let's do thing one, which opens a random door and gives me some random stuff because that will definitely affect, um, you know, the rest of my turn. Now I say random, that's because the card is random, but then it stays out there as a new worker placement spot for the rest of the game. So the first person to go to a spot will effectively get random things, but everyone else can then plan around those locations and try to go to them. Uh, now, the, ma- the last main mechanic I want to mention is the fact that there is this temple track along the side of the board, and you are going to be setting up a little magnifying glass as well as a notebook. And thematically, the magnifying glass is you doing some research and finding some some things, and the notebook is you actually writing those things down or logging them. Now, as you move up, you're just going to be spending resources. And in fact, these are actions that don't involve playing cards or using your worker at all. So in this game with worker placement and deck building, many actions involve just spending your resources. Uh, Same with fighting the guardians. Oftentimes that has nothing to do with cards, although sometimes it does. So you have a wide variety of different actions that you're trying to do, and all of these things give you points. Fighting guardians gives you points. Uh, Exploring new locations gives you idols, which give you points and also one-shot bonuses and also potential other bonuses. Uh, And going up that temple track is going to give you a bunch of different things while also giving you victory points. Now, as I said, you're going to play this game over the five rounds and I played a uh, three-player game of this, and I remember when we were about halfway through the second round of the game, I I said, man, it seems like this is going to be a quick game. Like, only five rounds? That's kind of crazy, right? It's a deck-building game, right? Normally, in a deck-building game, you go through your deck many times. You have tons of different turns, but a big difference in this game versus other deck-building games is when you play cards, they go into a face-up discard pile, and if you ever run through your deck, that's it. You just ran out of your deck. You don't shuffle things up and make a new deck. You only shuffle things back in and put them to the bottom of any cards you had already at the end of each of the five rounds. So that means there are certainly some specializing things you can do, and there are also some pitfalls you can go into. For instance, I uh, came in a very close last place in our game, and in the fifth round of the game, I actually wasted two card draw opportunities because I had no cards left on the top of my deck. I over-specialized in getting card draw, but I also over-specialized in thinning my deck out. At the start of the game, my deck had six cards in it. When the game ended, my deck was nine cards. And in every single one of the five rounds of the game, I decked myself. I drew every single card from my deck in every round of the game, which 
normally sounds great, but again, if you are getting bonuses that say draw a card and you have no cards to draw, so you get nothing, that doesn't feel good. So that means I probably, A, took too many card draw bonuses, or B, got rid of too many cards from my deck, or I guess C, did not buy enough cards to actually fill my deck out to work. So that was definitely a decision that I made that I kind of regret, but at the end of the day, after we finished playing this game, none of us felt like it was too short. In fact, from a time perspective, our three-player game, which was the first game for all of us, took about two hours and 15 minutes. It was not a quick game by any means, but at no point did I feel downtime. Even though people might have been crunching through a lot of things because there's a lot of resource management. At one point, one of my friends got out some notes and started writing down what exactly they need to get to the top of the pyramid, uh, the temple track, because they wanted to make sure they didn't miss it by one resource. And they were crunching through it for a couple minutes, but I wasn't sitting there twiddling my thumbs. I was just staring at my cards, staring at my resources, staring at my options, because there are so many different things that you can do. And I was just constantly figuring out what the right thing to do was. And then when it was my turn, I would try to act. So it's not terribly quick, at least from my first perspective. I think a second game with the same three players would easily lop like 30 to 40 minutes off that, but I don't really see this being shorter than 90 minutes for three players, at least with the people in my group and the amount of analysis paralysis that we naturally lean into. Uh, now, I also want to comment about how it feels, because again, midway through that second round, it seemed like it wasn't going to be long enough to really utilize your engine and utilize your cards. But the fact that when you buy those artifacts, they immediately activate means it's kind of like your deck is even bigger than you thought it was. And we did so many things in the fourth and fifth rounds of the game that um, I absolutely felt satisfied with um, having run my deck enough and having built enough uh, from it. And I felt satisfied with the um, w when the game ended. It seemed like it was a good time for it to end overall. So this game did a really neat idea of mashing together worker placement, deck building, resource management in a way that, that just kind of fulfills all of these different things. They mesh super well together. And I can easily see people saying, oh, this game doesn't do anything new. It's just got worker placement and deck building. That's a little bit different than normal. But from my one experience, my one play, and my discussion with my friends who played it alongside me, it seemed like mixing all these things together into a stew really worked. Like the sum of these parts was, uh, I guess, greater than each individual one. The, the sum of the whole was greater than each individual part uh, because of the way they interacted. Uh, the decisions of, do I spend cards for their action or for the movement for the workers? And also, do I spend resources to send my workers out to explore new areas? Or do I spend those same compass resources to get new artifacts, which give me special abilities, but then don't actually unlock those things? There are just so many wonderful things to think about. Uh, really, the only detractor that I can think of is the fact that analysis paralysis was very real. <laughs> As I said, the downtime didn't feel particularly bad because I had so much analysis to do. So when my opponents were taking long turns, that was fine because I was still crunching through things. But there are uh, quite a few different resources and many opportunities for you to miscount and be one tablet shy of your awesome plan. And that doesn't feel great. There are ways to get around that by burning some points with your idols if you happen to have idols, which I won't talk about, but that's just one more thing uh, to, to keep in mind that you're crunching. So for players who um, are prone to analysis paralysis, this game is definitely going to, um, I guess, aggravate that to a certain extent. But at the same time, even players who had a good bit of AP in this game really enjoyed it at the end because it just seemed like we were all doing so much thinking collectively, uh, trying to piece together how to do well with this overall puzzle. So yeah, first impressions of Lost Ruins of Arnak are a big thumbs up. Uh, everyone I talked to seemed actively interested in playing it again. Uh, one player felt a little bit of reservations, like 
This might feel samey if we keep playing it over and over again. They weren't sure if it would actually break out and feel different enough from one game to the next. Uh, same person, actually, who had the, the same uh, 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 worry about Beyond the Sun that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I haven't played the game again, so I can't really comment on that. But from my personal perspective, I feel like the mix of different um, uh, archaeologist spots that come out, along with the mix of the, the way the cards come out to build out your deck, is probably going to make this game feel fresh for many games. So I'm looking forward to playing this one more. I I'm curious to try it at two. Um, that would probably be fine. Um, I would play it at four, I think, as long as most of the people had played it before, but I'm not super convinced four is going to be the best player count, again, because of the analysis paralysis. I think four would just strictly make it a longer game. So three is likely going to be my favorite sweet spot, and two would probably be fine. But uh, yeah, that is my initial impressions of Lost Ruins of Arnak. All of us are actively interested in playing this one more. Well, let's now move on to the third game, which is The Castles of Tuscany. Now, this is effectively a sequel game to The Castles of Burgundy, which came out, I think, four to five years ago. Uh, both of them were designed by Stefan Feld. Now, there are definitely some similarities between these two games, but let's talk about The Castles of Tuscany first. Um, I guess the first thing I'll say is that I purchased a copy of this one from uh, Amazon.de because I saw uh, Slicker Drips did a uh, video for it and I thought it looked cool. So I paid for it to be shipped over from Germany and then actually scanned in all of the documents and made my own tabletop simulator mod so that I could play this with my friends because I was quite interested to do so. Now, Mechanically, in this game, you are going to have three different kind of area tiles that you assemble in front of you to make a mass of different hexagonal color tiles that are all uh, next to each other. Now, as you play through this game, uh, every turn is really simple. You are going to choose one option from three. The first option is you are going to draw two or maybe more cards if you have upgrades. So that's your whole turn. You just draw cards, your turn is over, the next person goes. The next option is you can draw a hex tile from a public market as long as you have a free space on your personal area to reserve those tiles. So once again, it's your turn, you take a tile, put it down into an empty space, your turn is done, the next person goes. The third option that you can do on your turn is you can place a hex tile that you have in your reserve out onto a uh, open spot in your overall territory that you assembled at the start of the game. Now, in order to do this, you have to play two cards from your hand that match the color of the tile that you are playing. And I believe there are eight different color tiles in the game, something like that. Now, if you don't have two matching cards, that's fine because you can spend two identical cards of any other color as if it was one card of the applicable type. So you could spend two orange and a yellow in order to get the two yellow that you need to place a yellow hex out. This also means you could spend four cards if you want to. You could spend two uh, orange and two red, both as a wild for a yellow, to then put a yellow hex out if you want to. So the first two actions, which are drawing a hex and drawing cards, essentially um, facilitate the third action where you spend cards to place a hex that you have taken. Now, you put the hex that you placed out onto your board adjacent to a previously placed hex, and each of the different hexagon uh, tile types has a different reward. Some of them will give you workers, which you can use as a wild card for placing new hexes out. Uh, others will give you marble, which you can spend just to get another turn immediately, which is great. Uh, others will just give you cards, which help you play out new hexes later on, and uh, still others give you upgrades, which might do things like every time you draw cards, you draw more cards, or you have more spaces to store the hexes in front of you, or perhaps every time you take workers, you get more workers. So that's 
kind of the game. <laughs> as you play and as you take the hexes from the market, you're actually going to refill the market from your own personal supply of these three stacks. As soon as the first player empties their first stack, which is seven tiles, I think, uh, which effectively means as soon as one player has taken a hex seven times, there is a scoring. Now, at that point, in the middle of the, uh, uh, the table, there's a board that has a red and a green track on it. So what you're going to do is you're going to take the amount of points you have on the green track and add those to the points you have on the red track each time you score. And that happens after the first person finishes their first and then their second and then their third stack. So three times throughout the game, there will be scorings where you just get the points, the green points that you already have added to your red. So that means if you get green points in the first round before the first scoring, then that one green point you got will score three times so that one green point is actually worth three points at the end of the game. Versus if you get a green point before the last scoring, obviously that's only going to be worth one. So this game is definitely about trying to do things quickly before the scorings, but also trying to build for the future, getting things like upgrades out, as well as um, laying these tiles down in such a way to actually be able to access various things that you want. Uh, one of the big ways that you get the green points is by fully filling in a contiguous type of uh, tile color uh, that's in your player area. And again, you make your player territory by putting these three overall tiles down. So you can kind of decide if you want to have big areas or small areas. And the bigger the area that you complete, the more green points that you get. Uh, so for instance, in the one game that I played, I was able to complete one of the size three areas, which is as large as they come. Uh, I did that before the first scoring. That gave me six green points, which means it technically gave me 18 points because that was six times three through the th three scorings. So focusing on getting that size three area done early uh, ended up paying off for me because I did win the game by a few points. It wasn't a blowout by any means, but I definitely did well in this game. So as you're playing this game, you're just trying to constantly balance what you're trying to do. Uh, it has an interesting uh, uh, cycle to it in that at the start of the game, you only have one storage space. So that means when you take a tile, you can't take another tile. Well, I guess technically you can take a tile if you have no storage space, but you have to get rid of a tile that you had prior, which means you're kind of erasing an entire turn that you took, which seems bad. So you're kind of blocked by that tile that you have. So you take a tile, and then you really want to play that tile before you take another tile, but you might not have the cards that match up the color of the tile that you want to play, but you took that tile, so maybe you try to maybe you should try to focus on taking tiles. They have cards that actually back that up. Uh, of course, if you're in a situation where you don't have the cards to play the tile, well, maybe you just spend your whole turn drawing cards. And we ended up playing a four-player game of this. It took, I don't know, probably about 90 minutes overall, something like that. It wasn't terribly long. And the actions were really quick. In this game, oftentimes it was just like, I'm drawing cards, my turn's done. You're taking a hex, your turn's done. And just like the average turn amount was probably about 20 seconds. And then occasionally someone would have a big turn, especially later on in the game, where they might place a tile out, where they might have to spend a few different cards to place that tile out. That gives them a bonus, and then they can spend a marble to take another turn, which lets them do a bit more of a combo turn, which might take a minute and a half or something like that before the play moves on. So while the turns seem really tiny, even in a four-player game, it seemed like it was your turn again quite quickly, and the play went around the table many, many times. Um, so when the dust settled, as I said, I did win this game, and I found that I quite enjoyed the overall experience. Um, another one of the four of us quite enjoyed it. Um, another person was a bit lukewarm, and the fourth person wasn't pretty, wasn't too hot on it. And, and it really, it seemed like the breakdown was people who prefer lots of strategy in their games versus people who enjoy a decent amount of tactics. Uh, this game does not have a lot of strategy. <laughs> you are randomly drawing tile, uh, cards from the top of the deck, so you can't really you know, base a strategy around that. But there is some strategy with 
the order in which you place these hex tiles down, but maybe you really want a specific type of hex and it's just not showing up in the market, well, now you have to change up your strategy a little bit to find something else that you can do. Uh, I quite enjoy a hefty dose of, ta of tactics in my games um, versus, you know, just going with a strategy that's never going to be blocked and hopefully my strategy is better than your strategy. There's, a there's enough randomness in this game to make trying to be like bullheaded with your strategy a very bad idea. And honestly, it'll just make you probably not have that much fun with the game. Now, everyone who played this game has played Castles of Burgundy before. And I think to a certain extent, that's almost going to be the biggest issue with Castles of Tuscany for players is that if they really like Castles of Burgundy, they're going to compare the two. And the Castles of Tuscany is a much lighter game overall. It has a lot less rules. Uh, it's also a lot quicker to teach, which is nice, but it's also arguably more random. It's arguably much more tactical. And I feel like people who adore Castles of Burgundy are going to, on average, be disappointed with the Castles of Tuscany, um, which is a little interesting because I think a big selling point of this game is, oh my gosh, there's a sequel to Castles of Burgundy. Everybody run out and get it um, if you liked Burgundy. And so it's a bit odd. Like, I feel like if this game was any other theme, if it wasn't called the Castles of Tuscany, if it was just called Tuscany or, you know, Tuscan Hills or something like that, um, by the same uh, uh, designer, people might say, oh, well, you could see a bit of Castles of Burgundy in there, but it's its own thing. But having it specifically called the Castles of Tuscany, I think makes people draw too many comparisons because it really is a lighter, more streamlined, significantly more tactical game. And I personally think I fall more towards the Tuscany side than the Burgundy side. Um, I've played Castles of Burgundy several times. I used to own it. I gave it to a close friend of mine, so it's still within my overall gaming group, but I haven't played it in years. Um, I enjoyed it, but I feel like if I was presented with the option to play Burgundy or Tuscany, um, you know, five times, uh, or I guess maybe four times is a better way to say it, I'd probably go with Tuscany three out of those four times because... I tend to prefer little quicker, more streamlined, more tactical experiences these days over um, heavier experiences. I know a lot of people say the Castles of Burgundy isn't a heavy game, um, but, you know, I'm not saying it's heavy, but it definitely has enough going on that if you have to teach somebody new, there's a lot of little nuanced things that you have to talk about. There are special buildings with custom rules and the tiles are really tiny and the different buildings are hard to differentiate between the two and they have drastically different effects. Um, there's dice that kind of fall in between each of these mechanics between taking the hexes and actually playing the hexes out, whereas in Tuscany, you just take the hex and you play some cards to put the uh, building out. So it's just it's just uh, designed and developed towards a different audience than the Castles of Burgundy. And I think when you look at it through that lens, I think it's a great game. Again, I've only played it once, so uh, time will tell, but I'm looking forward to playing this one more. It's it's the kind of weight that I really enjoy. It kind of reminded me of Luxor, um, probably because I played Luxor like two or three weeks ago, so it's on my mind, um, in that that's the kind of weight game that it is. It's, you know, in Luxor, you have a hand of five cards and you play a card from the right or left of your hand, and that's your turn. You play, it's on your turn, you play a card, you do the thing, it's the next person's turn. And Castles of Tuscany has that same kind of lightweight tactical feel, trying to do the best that you can in every given circumstance and not really worrying about an overall strategy too much. So um, I quite like it. Um, not all of my friends are super sold on it. I feel like all of them would be willing to play it again. I, I will say that one of my friends actually played this two players afterwards. Uh, one of the people who was a bit lukewarm on it didn't like all the tactics and they enjoyed the two-player game a little bit more because... Honestly, it was a quick game, but it went even quicker uh, having just one other person take their turn between you. Um, there was some concern with some of my friends about the market being too uh, volatile in a four-player game. The size of the hex market does not change with the player count. I personally didn't see a problem with that, but one of my friends really felt like 
eight tiles in the market was not enough for a four-player game. And, you know, to each his own. Um, it seemed fine to me, and it just seemed like they didn't vary the market size with the player count because they're going for a more streamlined rules approach. In fact, there is no rules changes between the player counts besides just having less people around the table, and I think that was probably an active thing. So, yeah, I quite like the Castles of Tuscany. I'm looking forward to playing it more. I won't say that I'm, like, crazy excited to play it more, but I, I do think this one will get more plays, uh, especially in situations where I want to knock out, like, a quick 60 to 90 minute game that will only take me about 10 or so minutes to teach to new players. Okay, let's now move on to the fourth game I'll be discussing, and that is Vikings. Now, there is a significant difference between this game and all the rest that I'm talking about today, and that's the fact that this game came out in 2007, whereas the rest of the games I'm discussing came out within the last month or two. Now, Vikings is a Michael Kiesling-designed game, and it's one that I've essentially just missed throughout my modern board gaming uh, life. I, I really fell into modern board games in 2008, which is just a year after Vikings came out, and I never really saw it. I didn't I didn't really know it existed until just a few months ago, actually, uh, when somebody posted about it on Twitter, and I was like, that looks like a cool game. Oh my gosh, it's 13 years old. <laughs> now, uh, interestingly enough, I actually mentioned that in um, uh, my Games Radar vlog, and a friend of mine heard me say that and was like, Oh my gosh, I love Vikings. I've played Vikings over a hundred times on Yukata, which is a website where you can play board games. And um, they they said they would love to teach me the game and play it on Yukata. So that did end up happening a few weeks ago. We played a three-player game. And this is the first time I've used Yukata. Uh, this is a browser-based board game site, and it has tens of games that you can play. And unlike things like Tabletop Simulator, Yukata actually knows the rules. So you are kind of going through making decisions and it will calculate the scores up for you. It will tell you what you can do. It will tell you, it will not let you do things that you aren't allowed to do. It's very structured in that way. So interestingly enough, it was kind of hard to learn <laughs> because you couldn't just like pick things up and like point to other things. We, we uh, did a screen share over Zoom to make this happen, uh, but it's not that complicated of game and, and we ended up making it work. So um, in Vikings, what you do is uh, you are going to be taking tiles that uh, have Vikings associated with them from the market and then you place those tiles and the Vikings down into your area in front of you. Now the market, um, I think in real life is a circle, but in Yukata, it's just a line and it is going to randomly deal out these tiles and then also randomly pull out Vikings in different colors and put them in a specific order on top. So when you buy a tile, you actually buy a tile and a Viking as kind of a combo. Now, when you put these tiles down in uh, front of you into your area, you just have to put it adjacent, orthogonally adjacent to a previously placed tile, and you can't have it clash, like have water going against, you know, land or something like that uh, in a line. And then you also have the ability to place the Viking down on top of it if the row matches. Now, the player area that you have in front of you is split up into a series of different rows that are matched up with the different color types of Vikings. So if you put that tile into the row that matches the color of the Viking you have to buy, you put the Viking right on top of it. If it doesn't match, then you put the Viking up on the top of your board, and at the end of the round, when you do some scoring, um, you will have the uh, potential ability to kind of send out some more of these Vikings to the different spots. Now, this is essentially a puzzle that you are building in front of you with these islands. The islands always go uh, horizontally across the different rows, and the way they work is at the top, you're going to be potentially placing pirate ships, which are bad. Um, if you are able to defend against them, you can get bonuses, but they will also, if undefended, 
negate the effects of all of the uh, Vikings underneath them, or at least up to a certain amount, depending on the ship. So you can think of the rows as associated with the different uh, Vikings and the columns as associated with invading pirates. Now, right underneath the pirate ship, you can put a warrior, I think. And if there's a warrior underneath the pirate ship, that defends against the pirate ship and you get a benefit and everything below it is fine. But if you're not protecting with a warrior, that pirate ship, once again, will affect up to a certain amount of spaces and any Vikings underneath it that would normally score you points for doing different things will no longer activate because they're being affected by those pirates. So this game is really all about trying to position things correctly, but the rounds go until all the tiles are taken. So that means you are going to take pirates. And also, again, if you defend against the pirates, you get stuff like money or victory points. So having pirates is not that big of a deal, especially if you have warriors to actually extract those points from the pirate ships. So as you play through the game's rounds, I can't remember how many rounds it goes through, six, something like that. Uh, <laughs> you are going to be building out more and more space in front of you and you score at the end of each round slightly differently. I think every other round you score bigger. Um, try not to go into all of the specifics here but you are just trying to build out this puzzle that will hopefully uh, squeeze out more points for you than your opponents as you're trying to defend against the pirates and also trying to uh, build your tiles out in such a way that you can be efficient to place tiles with the correct type of pirates on, uh, sorry, Vikings on top of them to score you points, again, for different conditions that I'm trying not to go into. Uh, now, we played one game of this, and I really enjoyed it. It was a slick experience. It was essentially what I was expecting it to be going in. Um, I enjoy tile laying games in general. Uh, Carcassonne is one of my favorite games, uh, and this, you know, definitely had that kind of feel. Uh, one game that I uh, played a bunch years ago called Maori was also all about building out uh, uh, horizontal rows of uh, islands. Actually, I think you could do vertical in that game as well. And um, I really enjoyed that game. Not going to go into the specifics of it, but I got kind of a, a tickle of that same vibe with this one. And I really enjoyed just putting these things together, but having the added uh, mechanics of trying to score these Vikings in the correct place to actually make yourself, make make it all work. Uh, now, I actually ended up winning this game, which I felt pretty good about. I beat somebody who's played this game like over a hundred times, but they were teaching the game and it's possible they pulled some punches or um, I probably just got a little bit lucky with how some of the things uh, 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 sorted themselves out. But um, this is a neat game. It's one I could certainly see myself playing again more online. Um, I'd be curious to try it in person as well. That, that would be totally fine. I don't think I'm like, super excited about it. I'm not going to rush out and buy a copy of it. Um, if someone said, do you want to play Vikings or do you want to play Carcassonne? I will always grab Carcassonne, even though they're significantly different games. You know, they're both tiling, but they're significantly different. Um, but that's, you know, not saying that much considering I think Carcassonne is brilliant, especially um, at two players. This was a three-player game and I love three-player Carcassonne as well. So um, yeah, Vikings was cool. I would not mind playing it again at some point. If I stumble into a copy of it that I can buy for like $5 or something, then I would certainly go after it, but uh, I'm not planning on hunting it down at this point. Well, we've now reached the fifth and final game I will be discussing, and that is Whistle Mountain. Now this is a thematic sequel to Whistle Stop, which was a uh, train game designed by Scott Caputo that came out like three or so years ago. Uh, but mechanically, these games are completely different. They just have a similar sounding name. Now, uh, this game is on Tabletop Simulator. There is, I believe, an official uh, publisher-made mod for it. And I got to play a four-player game of this with three of my friends just a few days ago. Uh, now, I actually first heard about this because I watched Rado's run-through that he put out a week or two ago. And I thought it looked really interesting. So it definitely popped up on to my radar and I wanted to make playing this game happen. And um, actually, another friend of mine 
was super excited about it as well. And they ended up teaching the game to all of us. Now, mechanically, this is a worker placement game with some pretty interesting tweaks. Everybody has three workers, which are in the shape of airships. You have a small airship, which is a size one by one, a medium one, which is a one by two, and a large one, I think a dreadnought it's called, which is a one by three. Now, whenever it's your turn, you can either send out an airship or you can recall all of your airships and then build some stuff. Now, when you send out the airships, there are worker placement, or I guess airship placement spots around the outside of the board that let you do whatever is associated with it. You might go to a spot and spend some whistles in order to get some scaffolding. Uh, another location might give you an upgrade, which gives you a conditional bonus for the rest of the game. Uh, other spots let you grab buildings that will go into your supply. And um, these things just let you do these things. They just let you uh, uh, build up various stuff into your horde. Now, another big thing that you're doing in this game, and honestly, the reason I got excited, is you can send your airships out to the center of the board. Now, at the start of the game, there's just going to be some scaffolding, that's some gray pieces that are kind of built up. It's this kind of tower of stuff that's being made. And you uh, this tower is very sharp, so you can't land on top of it, but you can go adjacent to it. And every orthogonal space next to your airship, which again could be a size 1x1, 1x2, or 1x3, Every one of the adjacent spots is going to give you whatever is showing on it. So it could be like a gold and a whistle, or it could be a coal and um, some water. And you just take those resources and you put it onto your player board. Now, as you play through the game, you are also going to be able to recall your airships and build, as I mentioned before. And when you build, you get up to three builds, which you have to spend some water for, in order to place the scaffolding down, as well as potentially constructing buildings on top of the scaffolding. So it has kind of a polyomino, uh, a group polyomino puzzle vibe to it. So you have to put scaffolding down, and then once it's fully filled in, you put the building on top of it. And you're going to score points for how many connections the scaffolding has, and the buildings themselves will also score you points based off of the number that's on it. Now, once you construct that building, it is now going to stay there in this communal tower for the rest of the game, or at least while it's above water, which I'll talk about in a second. And now you can actually, or anyone really, can send their airship and land it on top of that machine because the machine isn't spiky like the, uh, the uh, scaffolding. So when you do that, you then activate the machine, but then you still activate everything that's orthogonally next to it. So as this tower builds up, you can have situations where you land an airship down onto a machine, activate the machine, but the, the machine, the airship is actually kind of adjacent to two other machines that are next to the previous one. So you get to activate both of those. And then the back end of the airship is also next to a couple of resources. So you get those. So you have situations where you could send out an airship and get like two resources, or you could send out an airship, activate three different machines and get a bunch of resources. The machines might spend resources to get more stuff to then let you build in the middle of your turn. There's just a zany amount of common combinations that you can get by slapping an airship down onto the machines in this tower. Now, another big part of this game is the fact that there is a water level that is rising as the game goes on. Now, players have these little workers. Some of them are kind of starting the game, drowning in a whirlpool down at the bottom, which is a bit dark. Uh, but as you play through the game, and specifically when you do the build actions, you can send these workers out to places on the scaffolding. Now, if anyone constructs a building on top of a worker, then that worker is essentially, I don't know, deputized to work the building or something like that, and they get sent over all the way to the right to a scoring location. If you're the first person to that spot, you get a medal, which is a bonus, and then that worker is worth that many points. Now, that's important because the game is going to keep going until all of the workers are tasked out or until the water level reaches the uh, top, the middle section of the board. Now, whenever the water level moves up, 
any workers that are associated on that level, either on the left side or on a scaffolding that has not had been built over yet, those are all going to fall down into the whirlpool and just continue drowning with the rest of the drowning workers. Um, now, the water level only goes up when a building is constructed over the main water level line. So in this one play that I did, uh, we ended up kind of building a spire and uh, lots of buildings started getting built above that water line, which kept pushing the water level up and drowning more and more people. And if I'm being honest, I was actively pushing to do this. And the reason for that is because I had a special upgrade card, which let me rather easily send my workers out onto scaffolding where I could then rescue them by building on top of them. So because I was able to pull them out quicker than my opponents were, I decided to essentially rush the end game or as much as I could by constructing as many, as much scaffolding as I could above the waterline to then put buildings down to rush that up before my opponents were able to free up their workers. Um, this ended up working out very well for me because I won handily. I had a score of about, I think, 140. Second place had about 120. And then somebody else had like 92 and somebody else had 88. Now that's kind of the overall arc of this game. And I have to admit that while I was playing this game, I was loving it. I was really digging these decisions. Uh, right from the very beginning, I thought I loved the communal worker placement polyomino building thing in the middle, even though thematically it makes zero sense. I have no idea what's actually supposedly happening in here with this collective tower of machines that are getting drowned out by the water and drowning people. By the way, you lose points for the people drowning in the lake at the bottom of the, uh, at the end of the game. So I was loving the decisions I was making. Uh, I had all sorts of different opportunities, uh, different things, different plans. It's very tactical because obviously you could plan to send an airship to a certain spot to then activate a bunch of different things. And the person just to your right might do exactly that. And suddenly you need a new plan. So I spent this entire game constantly coming up with a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, because things were so dynamically changing as we were playing the game. Uh, our four-player game took... I think around two hours. It wasn't terribly long overall. Uh, and so, so the game ended and I won, which felt good. And I asked everybody what they thought. Um, obviously I very much enjoyed it. I liked the decisions that was in it. The player who came in with about 120 points said they really enjoyed it. They're the ones who taught the game. And then my friend who got, I think about 92 points said, and I quote, I hated this game with every fiber of my being. <laughs> which, you know, was a bit hyperbolic. I think he was playing uh, things up a little bit, but um, he really, really disliked the game. And, and my other friend who had 88 points also really disliked the game. So we had this interesting conversation that lasted like 45 minutes to an hour after we played the game where half of us really liked it and half of us really did not like this game. And we're trying to just hash it out and figure out why. We weren't like arguing. We're just discussing the different things. And the big takeaway that we saw was much like I've talked about earlier, that the two people who liked the game were much more into tactical experiences and the two people who hated this game much prefer strategic experiences. They actively disliked the fact that they could have a plan and it just goes up in smoke because somebody uh, built a building that obstructs or maybe they sent their airship onto a spot that they wanted to go onto. Also, the fact that airships can linger for like three or potentially even more turns on a spot, effectively blocking it really uh, irked two of my friends. They did not like that. Whereas I was all about, you know, coming up with a new plan. Okay. That sucks. Plan A is gone, but let's try to do plan B. I found I was constantly thinking, constantly trying to come up with new strategies where uh, I guess in uh, new plans, while my two friends who hated it, they, they said that were, they were bored, that they like surfing their phone and like, they just could not be engaged by the game at all. And these are very good board game players who are very into board games. So what we kind of ended up gleaning from this is really two things. The first, as I said, 
people who prefer tactics over people who prefer strategy. But the other thing that emerged was discussing these cards. Now, I haven't talked about them just yet, but there's this deck of cards that you can draw from through worker placement actions, but also through a variety of different bonuses. Now, on your turn, you can spend up to one card, and it just does what it says. Oftentimes, it's essentially a carbon copy of another action out there, or maybe it's a, a discount on doing something, or maybe it just gives you some resources. Now, in this game, at the start of the game, everyone gets an asymmetric bonus. And my asymmetric bonus said, if I draw at least one card on my turn, I get to draw another card when my turn is over. So I obviously decided to lean into as many ways to draw cards as I could because I got a latent bonus. If I drew at least one card, I'm going to draw another one. And you can use one turn, so that's just more stuff to do. So as I played through the game, we, we kind of counted it out. And I think I spent a card, which again, up to one a turn, I spent a card on probably 75% of my turns. And I ended the game with several cards left in my hand. So I constantly, on essentially every turn of the game, I had a hand of cards that I could choose from to be part of my plan. The person who came in uh, second place, they also had a technology that gave them a card every time they built, so they had a decent card income as well. They probably played a card on almost half of their turns, something like that. The other two people, the people who hated this game, one of them played maybe like three cards in the entire game, and the other person was honestly about similar. So as we were having this long discussion, we started, we started to realize that a big difference between the people who liked the game and people who didn't like the game was having cards in their hand. Those two people didn't lean into ways to get cards. They didn't really spend energy to gather those cards. And we began to realize that they did feel a lot more hamstrung because they had a lot less options available to them because they didn't have this extra kind of bonus action that they could do on most of their turns like I did because I leaned so heavily into gaining cards. So I think that might be, you know, a first player situation. Like nobody knew how good the cards would be. I just decided to lean into them and it worked out very well for me. But also, um, I think if those opponents had had more cards, that would have increased the number of options. But still, you're drawing them random from the top of the deck. So it's just one more tactical element to the game. So uh, my big takeaway here is if you like tactical games, especially worker placement games, especially worker placement games where the options you can choose are drastically changing, uh, you might really like this game. I, I actively really enjoyed this game. Uh, a couple of my friends were like, I would never play this again at four players. It was way too hectic. I had no problem with it. I mean, I did come in a distant first place, so that's there could be a uh, winner's bias going on here, but I don't think I'd have any problem playing it again at four players. Uh, whereas, if you really enjoy strategy, you enjoy having plans that can be tweaked a little bit by your opponents, but not completely derailed, um, you might have big problems with this game like my friends did. And I do want to mention that one of those two people, um, not the every, uh, hate it with every fiber of their being, but the other person who still actively disliked it at four, they ended up playing it with um, the person who came in second, uh, two players, because they were just super curious to try it at two when things are going to be less chaotic. There's just one other person to mess with your plans. And um, that game apparently took a similar amount of time, maybe like 90 minutes overall. Uh, and um, that person enjoyed it significantly more, but they still gave me the caveat that they would never suggest this game, even at two players. They said they could be convinced to play it again at two players, but they have zero interest in four players and probably zero interest at three players. So this is just a polarizing game. <laughs> some people are going to dislike it a lot, apparently, and some people are going to potentially really like it. And I know that's a bit of a wishy-washy opinion, but I did want to let you know how it worked, you know, how it went over with the variety of different um, active board gaming friends that I have. Uh, this is one that I'm looking forward to playing more. I, I actively enjoyed the building up of the tower. And, you know, maybe the second time I play it, I'm going to hate it. Maybe things just worked really well for me and it was great having these cards. And, uh, you know, I, again, have a winner's bias going on. But 
That was the impression that I had. So um, that's going to wrap up my thoughts right now about Whistle Mountain. I am hoping to play this one at some point in the future. I'm just going to have less friend options to play it with, considering some of my friends actively hate it. All right, that's going to bring us to the end of this impressions vlog. Um, I think this is going to be a pretty long one. <laughs> I usually don't talk about five games, but uh, I played five games recently and I did want to discuss them, even if I had a lot to say about most of them. Uh, I'm quite happy that I enjoyed all of these new games, even if not all of my friends actually enjoyed them as much as I did. But uh, there's been some really good new gaming going on. Um, I will say that I am continuing to play the Rise of Queensdale campaign. We're up to like eight or nine games at this point, and I'm still planning on holding off on discussing that until we finish the campaign overall. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but we're slowly playing about one game a week, so at some point in the future, it will. All right, I think that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.